0: Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. Now, this is the last episode of season four, and instead of one guest, it features three wonderful writers slash editors. In this episode, you'll hear three mini lectures on topics of editing. The presenters are Shana Lambert, Cadence Mandebura, and Daniel Geller. The original recording was from our January storied event. It is my pleasure to introduce our first presenter. Our first presenter is Shana Lambert. Shana is the author of Radiance and Petra and two books of stories, Oh My Darling and The Falling Woman all of which were Globe and Mail Best Books of the Year. Her fiction has been published to critical acclaim in Canada, the UK, and Germany, and has been nominated for the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize, the Evergreen Award, the Danuta Gleed Award, and the Frank O'Connor Award for the short story. And I will clarify that Petra actually won the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize in 2021. Her stories have been chosen four times for the best Canadian shorts, uh, Canadian stories and have appeared in many publications, including the Walrus, Zoetrope All-Story, Plowshares, the Journey Prize Anthology. Welcome, Shana.
1: Oh, wow. Well, thanks. thanks, Megan, for that really fulsome introduction. And thank you all for, um, for coming out and being here uh, with us tonight. And, um, and big thanks to Cadence. And, and Danielle, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you say a little later in the evening. So, I'm my focus is on substantive editing. We've all been given um, a chunk of editing to talk about, and mine is on substantive, which um, which I do as a, a mentor, and on which I've also had done to me um, by editors um, from um, three different um, publishing houses. So, I can sort of talk to both of those. Um, what I really want to do is talk about, you know, first of all, what is substantive editing? How does it differ from the other kinds of editing? Um, why we as authors really do need it and um, what I do when I get a manuscript and um, and my experience with editors. Substantive editing, as, as so many of you know, who I, I saw your, your names flash by, so many are, are writers here tonight, of course, um, is when an editor reads and looks at a manuscript as a whole. So... They're not looking at punctuation um, or, you know, one certain thing. They're not copy editing. They're not looking for factual correctness. They're looking at everything. They're basically coming at the, at the book as a reader would. They're picking it up as though it were on the shelf already and 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 saying, oh, this is funny. Oh, this is great. Oh, this kind of puts me off. I wonder why. And making those notes as they go through it. But they're basically connecting it with it as though it were um, a published book. And um, and that's very important that this is not, you don't engage a substantive editor when you're in the, or very rarely do people engage a substantive editor, of course, there's you know exceptions to every rule, when they're writing and they're still in process. Instead, you tend to engage a substantive editor from outside publishing or submit to your publisher um, when you really um, feel like the book is complete. And that the author has taken it as far as they can go, and now a new sensitivity is is really needed in order to open up the book to the next level. And I did want to say right from the beginning that that with the substantive editors that I've worked with, Anne Collins, John Metcalf, and Patrick Crean, but mostly with Anne Metcalf, um sorry Anne Collins, the comments that come back are really to ignite the imagination of 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 the writer. They aren't. They shouldn't be ideally hard and fast ideas or rules that are coming from on top from the editor saying, this is how I see it. This is how, how we want this book to be. Instead, really the, um, the editor should enter into the mind of, of the writer and um, understand what they're trying to create and then try to uh, lift it up to that, to the level of the thing that they know that that person is working to say, but hasn't perhaps quite articulated fully. Um, so what do I do uh, when I get a manuscript? Um, the first thing is I, you know, I pick up a pen, there's my pen, and, and I just make myself comfortable. And I read it as though I were reading a wonderful novel that I bought at Hager's Books. You know, I, I, I engage with it at that level. I'm expecting it to be a good book. And like I say, this is different than if I were reading something that someone's, you know, giving me chapter by chapter as a mentor. This is when They've submitted the whole manuscript to me. So I sit down to read it for enjoyment. And then what I do is I really note what's working. I note what's thrilling, what's exciting, what's moving me. This is really important because otherwise the author could just get sick of those parts and throw them out if they don't know that anybody thinks they're good. You know, so I really make a point of putting "haha" ha on the margins or putting check marks or saying, I love this. This is really funny. This is working. Wow, what a great chapter ending. So that they know, so that when they go back to the book to do the next edit, they don't think that that was something that should potentially be cut. And also just to boost up their confidence and, and make them realize, wow, and I've had the same thing with me. Wow, that joke I made, they think it's funny and thinks it's funny, right? It's it's important Like you want to start having that relationship with your, with your manuscript. You want to start feeling that there's readers who are actually going to connect with it. Then the next thing I do is take a look at what needs work. So this is where it gets tricky because with substantive editing, you're looking at everything in the book. So it could be structural issues. It could be places where it feels heavy and you're not sure why. Like it's sort of like the language is starting to bog or the, or the, um, you know, the, the whole story begins to bog. And, and so you just want to kind of make a note and go, Oh, this is, I'm losing the track here. And again, like when working with Ann Collins, um, from Random House, she would say, she could almost do Reiki on a manuscript and feel like she'd have the manuscript and she'd just like put her hand on it. She could say, this is where the author was into it. And this like chapter 15, they were just, you know, they were dialing it in and it just, they were bored. I'm bored, you know, and you can feel it in the manuscript. It just sort of oozes off it. So I would definitely mark things like that. Character questions, not seeing characters clearly enough, not feeling them enough you know, a sense uh, that the characters understand their relationship to each other, confusing parts, just noting what's confusing. I mean, you can write work on a manuscript for a long time and think that um, you're nailing something that still hasn't really been articulated. Um, which brings me to like this whole idea of, you know, unpacking and packing is a lot of what I do as a substantive editor. I come to places that are wonderful and they might be climactic, but they haven't been Um, Unpacked yet? They haven't been set in dialogue if they're a scene. They haven't, you know, they 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 take place in a paragraph and probably there's enough going on there that it would be six pages, ten pages. Who knows? We don't know yet. The author has to go away and unpack the climactic thing that they've buried. And similar to that, but you know, the opposite is they have to pack up what's boring and you know and get rid of it and 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 you know they can't tell i can't tell with my own manuscripts it takes another eye to appreciate where something is is um has been elaborated that actually isn't changing or altering anything in the story and therefore probably should be a sentence as opposed to 10 pages so when what yeah so nothing is is also out of bounds with an editor so when i've had my stuff edited um and when i edit myself I also note if a punctuation thing is becoming an issue. I note if they, you know, are are relying, you know, as a crutch on a certain kind of articulation that is becoming um yeah, something that that's getting overused and um if they're not varying it or even if the formatting is cuz the work I'm reading is going to go to a publisher, um I would and there's you know it, it, you want you want it to go in its best form so i would note if they're overusing italics or if they're italicizing thoughts which i don't think should be italicized or you know i would have that conversation with them about their formatting and paragraphing or you know even yeah just certain glitches in the writing if that emerged to the surface and felt like something they needed to to look at So then what I do as a substantive editor of a manuscript that's been submitted to me is I, I, when I'm all done, I let it sit for five or six days. I don't, um, I just, I don't think about it intentionally. I just go for walks and just let it drift around in my mind. And then I write them a letter and I use my notes and I write out, you know, always follows the same format, which is I, I, I tell them what's working first because that enables writers to hear what needs to be done. And so I make sure that I've really fully articulated how much of the manuscript is working, what I think is working, where I think it's really, you know, unique and special. And then I start to delve into what it would need um, in in the next layer, in my opinion, in order for it to be submitted for publication. Yeah. So, And that is, I think, a lot of what... um, a substantive editor in an editing in a, in a publishing house will do too. So just to, to conclude my mini lecture, I'll just describe a little bit of, of working with, like I said, I've, I've worked with John Metcalf through, um, he's mentored me. He's the editor, was for years and years and years and years, the editor for Biblioasis and founded Biblioasis and um, was also for many years, the editor of Best Canadian Stories. And so he would look at my stories and, and give me comments on them. Then I worked also with Patrick Crean at HarperCollins, but most of my books have been substantively edited by Anne Collins at Random House. She, she did the Falling Woman Radiance and Petra. And um, she's really, you know, she's the best in the business. She's amazing. And I feel so incredibly privileged and honored that I've gotten to work with her um, as much as I have. And, um, she's, she's really, really uh, well known for her editorial eye. So, and she has her own quirky way of working. I'm sure if she was here, she, she would say she does it completely differently. And of course she has far, far, far more experience than I do. But what she did with my book Radiance when I submitted it was, um, she read it, of course, then she was traveling out to Vancouver. So she met me um, at the Bacchus Lounge, which I, Was downtown in the Wedgwood Hotel. So I dressed up, she dressed up. It was a really classy way to meet my editor. And um, when I walked into the the bar, she had um, the book up on the table. And um, I was like, you know, nervous, of course, and, uh, you know, jumpy with excitement. And uh, she said, "Um, well, I've just told my husband, I've been reading a brilliant book. So that was, of course, one of the highlights of my life. And, um, and, um, and she kind of, you know, now I think about it sort of followed the format that I was just, just describing. She told me what was working about the book. She got me excited. She got me flared up and then she, you know, hit me with, with what I needed to do. And she had on the front, on the title page, she had written eight points. And those were the eight substantial points that she thought the book needed. And they were so hard to do, basically, that it took me eight, those eight points took me eight months of revision to get them right. And they were things like, I mean, some of them were, were simple jots that she had written, like that I had left the husband out in the last third of the book. So the husband of the main character had just accidentally disappeared. And I don't know how I hadn't noticed that, but I hadn't. Yeah. And, and she, and she also said that I had two endings to the end of that book, which was a very... Uh, surprise to me because I thought I only had one ending, but she said I'd actually had, I thought I had one very well-crafted ending that had, you know, a a minor chord and then a major chord at the very end. And uh, in in fact, she said that one of them should be, you know, that only needed one. And, um, but it was complicated because it wasn't just a question of getting rid of one. I had to do a lot of melding and a lot of thinking and a lot of jumping around in time to make that actually work for the book because I'd been aiming there for the whole writing process, you know, years. So so that was that was the kind of thing she did. And and she also edited my my novel, Petra, that Megan was talking about that um and and basically it was COVID. And I remember she she read it again and then she phoned me basically what she what she said was, there's a layer missing. And we started to talk just on the phone, back and forth, back and forth. And later she described it as a mind morph. It's like our minds were just morphing together, which I think is the most wonderful thing that a substantive editor can do there. They're inside your process. And so they're right with you, you know, and she was right with me in my head. And she was saying, there's something missing. Why does this person, cause it's written as a, um, as a memoir, but it's fiction. Why does this person write this memoir now? What is it about now? that forces him to go on that journey to tell that story. So then I had to look at now and think about what now was to this character and what now meant was that he had been frozen up to then, which I didn't have in the book yet. He unfreezes because of this tragic thing that's happened that he's carried for so long. Why does he unfreeze? Because his daughter reminds him of Petra yet this you know. And so it, so it helped me I guess, and then the biggest one was, why does he unfreeze? Because of the peril of climate change. So all those things, it's a political book, so it had that, you know, it's political fiction. All of those things became an aspect of what um, what that conversation was about. And it, they wouldn't have existed if she hadn't, you know, got inside my head and just shifted it around until um, until I saw it. And then, of course, like I say, I got off the conversation and I wasn't like, you know, um oh dear god what am i going to do which i have had with other editors what am i going to do with this this sucks this is terrible i should fling myself you know on the floor you know from the down the stairs but no in this case i got off the phone and i was in i was buzzing all over i was so excited and i just knew i could do it so i guess in conclusion i would say that that for myself as a substantive editor, I think it's one of the most exciting processes that I engage in in my life to get to be inside the head of a writer who's creating something and to um, um, play a, a part in their process by, by probing or, or asking the right questions. And I certainly have felt like that when, when I've been edited myself. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Sheena. So I'm just going to move us along here to our next presenter. Uh, and our next presenter is Cadence Mandebura. And Cadence is a writer and editor based in Victoria, B.C. She has worked across industries, never veering far from her compulsion to tell stories and fix apostrophes. Currently, she is a contract editor for Prison Press. Friesen Press, the Associate Producer of The Truth Podcast and Managing Editor of WordWorks Magazine. Welcome, Cadence.
2: All right. Thank you so much. And thank you, uh, Shana, for that wonderful, inspiring talk about substantive edits. Uh, That is going to lead very nicely into my talk about copy editing. Okay. So, uh, so I'm coming to you from the traditional territories of the Lekwungen peoples who are today represented by the Esquimalt and Songhees Nation. Uh, this land is, uh, now often known as Victoria, BC. And I'm so happy to be here tonight. I discovered in, uh, created this presentation that I can literally talk for hours about editing. I promise you I won't. I've set a timer. I will keep to my time. Uh, but I get really excited about editing. So today we're going to talk about copy editing. What I'm planning to cover is what is copy editing? Uh, what goes into it? Why do you need a copy editor? And then I'll cover some tips for working with uh, copy editors and look forward to any questions that come up, um, at the end of this event. So, um, first question, what is copy editing? Uh, it is a good question because definitions do vary. Uh, I actually find that copy editing is kind of the most uh, flexible term in terms of the, the basic steps of editing that manuscripts usually go through. The scope can really vary depending on, uh, depending on your manuscript, your editor and what you're looking for. And we'll get into a bit more about like what that scope can involve. But uh, essentially, when you say copy editing, it might mean different things to different people. But essentially, generally, when we're talking about copy editing, we're referring to that very thorough, meticulous review of the text or copy of your manuscript. And usually copy edits are focused on mechanics. So spelling, grammar, punctuation, accuracy, uh, clarity, completeness, that sort of thing. Uh, Copy editing is a step that really professionalizes your manuscript. As you can see from the steps over here on the right side of the screen, um, copy edits happen after all that wonderful work you've done with Shana in a substantive edit or whoever your editor is. Um so your your manuscript should be like pretty close to being done before you move it to a copy editing, because copy editing is about preparing it for design and finding all those tiny, tiny uh, corrections that you need to get it ready for publication. Uh, Copy editing is sometimes or often, I would say, uh, combined at least partially with a stylistic edit or what is also called a line edit. Sometimes the word line edit is used synonymously with the word copy edit. And as Shana also just mentioned, you know, sometimes substantive edits also include elements of stylistic or copy editing. So it's a bit of a mush sometimes, these first three steps. But uh, just to clarify the difference, uh, we just heard a lot about substantive edits, a stylistic line edit, if you have a dedicated edit, uh, specifically for that, uh, it also looks very closely at the text of your manuscript, but it's looking more at your tone, your flow, if you should vary your sentence length, if it's at an appropriate reading level for your audience, essentially really polishing your prose to make it as strong as possible. And then the copy edit comes in with more of a focus on mechanics. Um, I do. Before I go on, I do want to just uh, clarify what I mean by the word style, because I'm going to say it a lot in the next couple minutes. So uh, style can mean two different things when we're talking about writing. Sometimes we're talking about our writing, our writing style, and that's a little bit more what I was just talking about with a stylistic edit. So that was, um, you know, it's uh, it's your voice. It's your authorial voice. So it might be something like uh, if you write short, snappy sentences, or if you write long, beautiful Victorian paragraphs, that's your writing style. Editorial style is something completely different. If you hear references to style guides, like the Chicago Manual style, AP style, most publishers will have their own house style. Uh, That's what we're talking about with editorial style and essentially what that is, uh, there are a series of decisions, uh, there are guidelines about uh, all the rules of how we put language on paper or on screens. All the rules about language um, such as capitalization rules, hyphenation rules, best use, um, those help us make uh, decisions as copy editors they're essentially the professional conventions that we adhere to and it tends to follow genre so it, it also reflects what readers are used to seeing. Uh, you can of course deviate from those guidelines but occasionally certain things um, uh, can be distracting if you deviate too strongly so usually need a good reason to move away from some of those things so editorial style. So why, why does copy editing matter? Uh, well just like any type of editing whether it's substantive, developmental, you know, you need a fresh pair of eyes, especially for a copy edit, because this is coming relatively late in the process of writing a book. And as you all know, writing a book is, is such a long, laborious process. You've gone through so many revisions. Uh, it can be very difficult to review and edit your own work at that point. So a fresh pair of eyes is really essential. Also, a copy edit is focused on very, very small details. Uh, I'll go through a bit more about uh, what's typically included in a copy edit. Uh, but we are the people who will look for, you know, a quotation mark that is in italics by accident on page 76. We will look for those extra spaces that shouldn't be in a footnote, you know, buried in an appendix. Uh, we will be the very fussy people for your manuscript, uh, so that you don't have to worry quite so much about those tiny details. As I've already mentioned, it helps prepare your text for design. Um, That has to do with formatting. I'll touch on that a little bit more later, but it just helps prepare the text so the designer can more easily work with it. And also, uh, because it's usually the last step before design, it's kind of the last chance to have someone external to yourself, a fresh pair of eyes, to flag any concerns. You've probably caught most of these things in earlier edits and revisions, but Sometimes weird things happen between revisions, sometimes text you thought you t- took out somehow is still in there or something you thought you added in didn't get uh, added added properly. So it's helpful to have that final pair of eyes just to make sure there's no concerns about things such as permissions, plagiarism, libel, or problematic language. However, the most important reason copy editing matters, I mean, it's like everything we do with writing, it's, it is about our readers. Um, for published books, readers have very high standards and even tiny benign errors and we all make them we're all human uh unfortunately that can really undermine your readers trust in your book and it can make both uh the author as well as the publisher look careless which is a great shame considering how much work we put into our manuscripts so so I like to think of copy editing as five Cs. There's actually a ton of good C words that apply to copy editing, but I've stuck with five, uh, that copy editing will help your manuscript to be correct, consistent, clear, clean, and complete. Uh, so I'm gonna go through each of those just to provide a few examples of what I mean. So the first C, correct. This is probably the one that most people think of for copy editing, particularly this first one, spelling, grammar, and punctuation. Um, Yes, copy edits will absolutely review for that. Um, However, as you can see, I'm going to be talking about a lot of other things. Personally, I find spelling, grammar, and punctuation is the easiest part of what I do as a copy. There's a lot more that goes into it, but it's obviously an essential part. Uh, In terms of making sure your manuscript is correct, we'll also check for kind of accuracy of general information, things that are easily verifiable. If you've written a really intense nonfiction book um, a copy edit is not the same thing as a rigorous fact check that is a different um, uh, that is kind of a different editorial service um, but you know for things that you know most people should know or that are just a, an easy google away <clears throat> uh, copy editors will typically will typically check for that such as the date of the Winnipeg general strike and then also anything internal uh, anything that could be correct or incorrect internal to your documents. So such as cross-references, uh, I have occasionally added up math and tables to make sure there are no numbers missing or uh, mistyped. Um And then, you know, or character names. I've written the wrong character name in some of my own writing. It's easy to do. It's a typo like any other, but your copy editor will be paying attention to your content so they can flag uh inaccuracies like that as they go. So first C is correct. Second C is consistent. So this is a huge one. Uh, copy editors spend an awful lot of time checking elements for consistency. Uh, this might not be something you think to check yourself because honestly, it's kind of dull. Um, and you're probably worried about other things as you're working on your manuscript. Um, this list is just uh, a few of the things that we would check for. So just as an example, ellipses is on there because uh this type of consistency check we would do for that is whether you use an ellipses with, you know, a space between each period, or if it's like three periods together with no space. Does it really matter which way you do it? Not a ton necessarily, but it should be consistent either way. So a lot of the decisions around consistency are governed by that chosen editorial uh, style guide, um, whether it's one of the big like Chicago style, or if your ha- or publisher has certain rules. Um, but as I said, those are only guidelines. And whether you've been thinking about it or not, as you write your manuscripts, you're probably already making style decisions. Uh, Shana mentioned like internal uh internal monologue or thoughts. That's a very common one. Do you put those in italics or don't you? Um, that is something maybe you know you have already decided for your manuscript. And if it decisions like that, if that deviates from what the Chicago Manual style advises, your editor will note that in a style sheet. And uh copy editor will certainly note that you may have a style sheet if you've worked with editors in a previous round. So consistency, a lot goes into that one. Uh, clear. So uh, I'm a big fan of clear writing. I, I have a soft spot for plain language when that's appropriate. Uh, this is the part where copy editing can sometimes veer more into that stylistic or line editing. Uh, how much kind of markup a copy editor does in terms of rephrasing things can really vary. That's where the scope can vary. Uh, so that's a conversation you'd want to have with your copy editor advanced advance to understand what level of detail they're going to go to. But certainly if there is a sentence that does not make sense, a copy editor would flag it and hopefully suggest a clear rewrite or, or prompt you to, um, to clarify if there's something missing or what, what might help clean. So this has to do, um, with formatting. I put an explanation mark because I, I'm often excited by formatting because I am that sort of person. Um, Shana already mentioned a few things about formatting, and I find this is something that a lot of writers, uh, just either don't know too much about, which is fine, um, uh, or, um, I haven't put a lot of attention to because you're so focused on writing the actual meat of your stories. Um, but it is a really important part, partially because, as I said, uh, this if a cleanly formatted document is much easier for a designer to work with so if you're at that stage where uh your copy edit is truly this is like you know you're you're really cleaning up your work to get it ready for design and publication the formatting matters at that point if uh if you're engaging a copy editor to be um submit to agents or to submit to publishers so so before you've kind of gone through the whole process with the publisher um to get it ready for publication. Uh, most of us who work with uh words and editing or publishing um we will notice if your if your formatting is a little wonky and unfortunately it doesn't leave the best first impression. Uh it's relatively easy to fix. Uh and complete. So complete is an important one. It is the art of editing what isn't on the page and that also applies to substantive editing um in a different in a different way. Uh for copy editing um most of these examples are a little bit more applicable to nonfiction, but uh, we're looking for key things that maybe should be in your book that aren't there. So citations and bibliography are usually a pretty important one just because you might risk plagiarism if those aren't uh, included properly. Uh, if you... Reference an appendix that doesn't exist. That is certainly something that we will flag. Um, You know, if uh, headings or, you know, say most of your chapters have a title and then chapter 14 weirdly does not. Those are the things we're looking for when we're looking for completion. Um And also just on a kind of internal logic level, missing information. If you uh, if you're, you know, writing in your book and you say, I'm going to tell you three reasons you should be a vegetarian, and then you only give me two reasons, you know, maybe something got lost in a revision, but that's something that a copy editor would look for and flag. So those are my five C's, correct, consistent, clear, clean, and complete. So let's move on for, um, I just have some tips for working with a copy editor. So I know this sounds all fairly intense, all of these changes, but Please remember that we're nice people and we're on the same team, right? So the copy editor is there. We want to help your manuscript be uh the best it can possibly be, as professional as it can possibly be, as clean as it can possibly be. Um and you can talk to us for humans. So before you begin, whether you're working with a copy editor through a publishing house or whether you're hiring someone uh yourself as a self as an independent author before you've had a manuscript accepted, uh, clarify the scope of the edit. Um, as I said, it can vary tremendously uh, in terms of what's included in the copy edit and also uh particularly like how hands-on your copy editor is going to be in potentially rewriting or rephrasing your words. Uh, you may not want that at all, or you may be looking for some more assistance with that. Um, you also may prefer your editor to um, put their suggestions as query bubbles, right? As comments, Uh, or you may be okay with them just like going in and making the changes for your review. So those are all things you can discuss with your copy editor in advance. Uh, Discuss style preferences. So uh, if if there's a specific, um, if you've made a specific choice in your manuscript in terms of formatting or capitalization, I had that list earlier, uh, that you know is a little unusual, uh, tell your editor about that and tell them why, right? You know, we're, we're actually fairly reasonable. I say a lot of these things are guidelines for a reason because we can alter them, uh, based on the authorial voice and the intention of the, the manuscript. Uh, that also goes for grammatical rules. Some grammatical rules are uh, more flexible than you would, than you might think. Some are a little bit more rigid. Um, but there's room for conversation. <laughs> uh, your, co- your copy, any editor really, but certainly your copy editor, Uh, you shouldn't feel like they are um, messing heavily with your voice. So just as an example, say uh, you use a lot of sentence fragments um, and that's important to your style and you find your copy editor is changing every single one of them. Uh, If that's important to you, if that's a really important part of your style and you feel that your editor is changing your voice, uh, that is certainly something you should you should feel free to raise the question. Um, you know there's editing is often a conversation so uh participate in that conversation when you feel you need to uh but at the same time some of the, some of the changes are less negotiable sometimes it's a publishing standard that uh your editor or publisher will not be willing to change and uh because copy edits can feel overwhelming it's good to just like take a little space and think about it before you decide which things if you do want to dispute any changes uh which things are the ones that most matter to you and which things are you know um not not as important. And then uh just uh, a few these are these are kind of basic but remember provide your best work copy edits come after you've done so much of the hard work on the the structural uh nature of your manuscript you've done a lot of work on your prose it's usually that final step of just like really cleaning, really taking a fine eye. Uh, you don't want to be rewriting passages after the copy edit because then you'll have to copy edit them again. So, uh, so make sure your, your manuscript should be in very good shape before you move to a copy edit. Um, so yes, yeah, substantive edits are complete. Do spell check your manuscript. Uh, the fewer errors there are to begin with, the better, uh, the copy editor can do their work. Uh, clean it up that it, Clean up me refers to uh, format it as cleanly uh, as you're able to your ability level. If you had a previous edit and there's track changes, you know, make just make sure those are clean. Uh, send the right version. That seems really obvious, but it's tragic if you send the wrong version. Um, you do want it to be that uh, latest, latest, cleanest version. And then I'm just going to close. This is kind of an underwhelming tip, but, uh, but here's where I'm going to close is get comfortable with track changes. Um, found it interesting that, uh, Shana was saying how your substantive edits, you, you provide a letter or have a conversation, which is a wonderful way to, to work with your, um, work with your text, uh, and work with your editor. When we get to the copy, uh, copy edit, we are very picky and very fussy. So there are a lot of tiny changes that are, in some respect, kind of minor. They need to be changed, but it doesn't necessarily need your attention as the author. So, um, it, so there, so sometimes what you get back in a copy edit is a very thickly <laughs> written, uh, or, or very, there's a lot of track changes for you to sort through. So just my final tip, um, and this is Microsoft Word because that's the, the program that editors typically work in for book length works is that if you find the amount of changes, um, uh that you see in track changes overwhelming. You may already know this tip, but if you don't, it's a good one to take home. Um, you can change how these are viewed. So you can uh, this is the all markup mode, so where you can see all the track changes. I find this terrible to read. I find it very difficult to read the track changes. So you can change it in the menu or you can just actually click this little bar if you use Microsoft Word, and then you will see the clean version. Um, as an editor, I actually already provide a clean version with track changes accepted. Um, but I do Of course, you can review the work however you want, whatever works best. But I do find it's easier to review the changes cleanly because this is where we're going. We're not, uh, at this point, rather than being focused on every little thing that was changed, you can look forward to the next version that uh, your copy editor is trying to help you to get to. And then it's really easy to just click that bar and toggle back if there's anything you want to double check. So uh, on that very technical note, I will close. And thank you so much for your attention. And uh, back to Megan and then Danielle.
0: Thank you so much, Cadence. That was great. So uh, without further ado, our last uh, lecturer this evening is Danielle Geller. Danielle is a writer of professional essays and memoirs. She received her MFA in Creative Writing for Nonfiction at the University of Arizona. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Brevity, and Arizona Highways, and has been anthologized in This is the Place. Her book, Dog Flowers, was a finalist for the 2022 Jim Diva Prize for Writing that Provokes and the 2022 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. She lives in uh, Victoria with her husband and two cats and teaches at the University of Victoria. She is a member of the Navajo Nation and born to the Sitna Jenny born for the white men. Welcome, Danielle.
3: Uh, thank you. Um, uh, thank you to BCU Homebook Awards for sort of like giving us the space to have this conversation. It would have been very helpful for me as an emerging writer to like have the opportunity to hear about some of these dynamics. And also big thanks to Megan Cole for organizing it and putting it all together so i'm going to be talking about you know this experience from the writer's perspective so last fall i actually delivered a course on uh, revision editing and copy editing uh, where i currently work at the university of victoria and i spent talking i spent four weeks talking Just about editing and then another four weeks talking about just copy editing. So I have a lot to say, but, uh, it's it's really condensed and I'm happy to clarify. It's also very excited to hear, uh, uh, Shana and Cadence's perspectives. I love working with editors. I love working with copy editors specifically. Um, and so I just want to share some of, you know, the experiences that I have and uh, some of the realizations that I've come to over time. Um, and so the two things I want to talk about today are setting expectations when it comes to working with an editor or a copy editor, but also setting boundaries and what does it mean to set expectations? Um, by one definition, an expectation is your estimation of potential outcomes. So do you see um, you know, the outcome being positive or negative? But an expectation also tries to account for you know, what could happen or what do you expect will happen? What do you think an editor does? Uh, what do you hope an editor can do for your work and your, your project? And so, as an emerging writer, you know, I didn't actually know what I expected this process would look like. Um, even though I had experience, you know, working as an editor for small literary journals, I didn't actually apply that to like my own process. Uh, I didn't have a fully formed idea of what this relationship would look like. And I really like this quote from Nancy Miller, and it was published, it was an essay published in What Editors Do. And she said, to be a book editor is to work at the intersection of art and commerce. And I think it captures beautifully um, a dynamic I think is important for writers to remember when they're trying to publish their work, whether it's short form form work or long form work. And this isn't like a value judgment. Um, I don't think that like this is a negative thing. Because no one and nothing is immune to um, the monetary realities of contemporary life. And so an editor isn't just thinking about, you know, like how beautiful your work is. They're not just thinking about its artistic value. They also need to consider like the monetary value of your work and how they will sell it and who your audience is. And that shapes um, the conversations that you will have with your editor. Um, And so what does that mean for the writer-editor relationship? And I'm just going to give you examples from some of the experiences that I have had. Uh, And so one of the essays I first published was this weird formally experimental essay with the very long title, Annotating the First Page of the First Navajo English Dictionary. Um, and it was picked up by uh, Mar- Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters for their anthology, This is the Place Women Writing About Home. Um, and so what I had done with this essay was I had transcribed this first page of the First Navajo to English Dictionary, and the essay itself was told through these footnotes. And so, what I was doing was, I was adding footnotes not to every entry in that dictionary, though every entry from that first page was included. Um, But each time I did have an annotation, you know, the essay was appearing at the bottom of the page. Um, And so, when I was working with Margot and Kelly, um, there wasn't actually a lot of substantive editing that was being done. Like, I had largely finished this essay before I ever sent it to them. And so what the feedback that I was getting or like what that relationship looked like was I was basically, they were sort of cleaning up my sentences just a little bit. Um, you know, they were looking at how it might be formatted on the page. Uh, but by, by large, the essay appeared in that anthology the way that I had written it. But as part of the um, publicity for that anthology, my essay was sent out to a couple of different publications, and it was picked up by the New Yorkers daily so that it appeared online. Um, And when it was picked up by the New Yorker, um, they changed a lot. It became what felt like an entirely different essay. And it's, I don't know, it's. To me, like it's a little bit disappointing that it's the version that most people read. Um, but what they had done was they changed the form. And so it didn't look like a dictionary at all. Um, rather than having each of those uh, words transcribed, they were only including the words and the translations that had annotations. And so you would have the word, the definition, and then the body of the annotation. And then the next word and it's definition and then the next entry. Um, and so like that to me gave it a much different feel. Um, they also were much more willing to shuffle my sentences around and cut entire lines or sections. Um, and there were places where I was like, man, like that doesn't sound right. Uh, so for example, in, in this screenshot from the edits that I had received, you have this sentence, um, you know, they changed it to "I am still drawn," um, but that didn't really feel like my voice. You know, when I read it aloud, I read it as "still I am drawn." Um, but as a sort of emerging writer, and this being one of my first experiences being edited, I I didn't really push back in any way. I was like, "Oh no, like this is the New Yorker." <laughs> Like of course I have to accept sort of all of these changes that they are throwing at me. Um But that sort of leads me to this idea of setting boundaries. Um because a few months later, uh well, let me backtrack a little bit. Um a few months later when I was invited to read for the publication or the, the publication of an anthology one of the editors had actually expressed some regret. Um, You know, I can't imagine what that experience was like for her because here she had published an essay and then the editors of a bigger publication come in and change a lot more, right? They're like totally transforming it. Um, And so I think, you know, in that conversation, she had sort of expressed like, oh no, like I should have done some of that work. But from my perspective, Um, my favorite version of that essay is the one that appeared in the anthology. Um, and so, you know, that experience sort of showed me like, I don't know. I think, I think really as a writer, um, you know, I should have more confidence in what it is I am doing with my work and the aesthetics that are important to me, um, And I think as writers, we can get excited uh, and overwhelmed with gratitude when our work is finally picked up for publication. Um, And I think that there's a power dynamic uh, that um, editors sometimes forget exists. And and what does it mean to say no to an editor? Does it mean that suddenly the rug is going to get pulled out from under us? That if we say no, our acceptance suddenly gets changed to a rejection. And, you know, I'm sure there are examples where that has happened. But for the most part, when an editor accepts your work for publication, they're as excited about it as you are. And they want to work with you. It's a collaborative relationship. Um, And sometimes I think that maybe that's obvious, but it didn't feel obvious to me. Uh, So there are a couple of pieces of advice that I like to live by, or that I do live by at this point. And the first one is: do your research. Know when you know the places that you are submitting your work. What do they publish? Can you see your work fitting in? You know, do you think that the editors uh, respect your or might respect your vision for your work? Uh, The second piece is hit submit with intention. And by that, I mean, like, does your work feel close to done? And that's a hard thing to know. Uh, Sometimes I think I swing too far in the, no, it has to be perfect before I actually submit it to someone. Um, But in most cases, or in a lot of cases, especially when you're working with the short form, when you're submitting like individual short stories or essays to like literary journals or uh, other publications, um those editors don't always have the, uh, the time or the resources to give your work um the attention required for those substantial edits. Um and so for me, uh publishing something that I w- I might not be happy with was like my worst nightmare. Um and so unless I feel like it's close to done, unless I know that the editor is willing to work with me on those substantive edits, um it's not something, you know, I wouldn't want to send it out into the world. Um, for me, I know for my process, I'm never going to uh, write something um, that's been solicited because I don't trust that I'm going to finish it on time. And I don't want to feel that pressure of, um, you know, publishing something that doesn't feel ready. And the last piece is know what is non-negotiable about your work. Uh, What are the kinds of things that you aren't willing to compromise on? And just as a quick example, uh, when one of my essays was selected by Brevity, they wanted to set the Navajo words in italics, like the New Yorker did. (laughs) Um, But from my perspectives, italics in that case is othering. Um, And so even though it matched their house style, their editorial style, I was like, wait, no, like, I don't want it to be set in italics. And even though it made me very nervous, uh, they didn't push back. And it was published the way that I had wanted it to be. And so this advice, like knowing what is non-negotiable about your work, is also connected to um, how you find an editor or the choices that you make when it comes to finding an editor. And this was something that I came to understand more when I started trying to sell my book, Dog Flowers, which is a, which is a memoir, it was published as a memoir. And when I was trying to find an editor for that book, uh, there were three editors that I was talking to. One was an editor from a small press. And um and it was a really respected small press. And I love the work that they publish, but they weren't really able to offer me much in the way of an advance. And going back to that idea, like these monetary pressures that we face as writers, um, I knew that I had a ton of student loans that I was going to have to start paying off because I was no longer in school and my forbearance period was ending. And I had just immigrated to a new country and I didn't have a job. <laughs> And you know, like a fifteen thousand dollars advance, like once your agent t- takes the cut, isn't very much money, and wasn't really going to get me through the year that I was going to spend working on the edits for my book. The other two edits, uh, the other two editors that I was talking to were working. Actually, they were both imprints at Random House, um, but they both had very different visions for what my book could be. And so one of the editors was really interested in um, the dictionary essay that I had published. And she was really excited for the entire book to be this formally experimental collection of essays. The other editor that was interested in the book saw it as a memoir. Um, And so she saw it not as like individual essays, but this longer work that um sort of had that arc whether it was like a character driven arc or whether it was more of like a narrative driven arc um leaning more towards character because that's what memoirs tend to do um but she saw it as something that like a story that took place over a much longer frame of time um And that was a really difficult decision for me to make because they were two very different. They were going to be two very different processes when it came to revising and like molding all of the the material that I had into a a coherent whole. And ultimately, I went with the editor um, who saw it as a memoir um, through the conversations we had. And going into those conversations, I I, can't, I was like, oh no, it's like I'm interviewing for a job and I have to sell this book to this person. Um, but what I realized as those conversations happened was, no, actually they were trying to sell themselves for me just as much as I was trying to like sell myself to them because they wanted me, they wanted to convince me about, you know, how they saw my book and how they would try to shape it together. Um And so in my conversations with Nicole Pounce, who is my editor for Dog Flowers, you know, I felt like we had some shared experiences, that she understood the larger project, that she understood some of the dynamics, and also that when it came to selling my book, she had marketing experience and she knew how to frame what I was doing to the, the publisher. And she supported my book, and she advocated my for my book and that was very important to me uh because I wasn't gonna do that myself because I'm very <laughs> that's a different that's a different conversation um but she advocated for my book in a way that i I don't think I would have um and so you know that that process of sort of like knowing knowing what I wanted and and finding someone who Uh, felt like they were compatible with me and my project. Um, And so that process, that editorial process, takes much longer. You're working with someone when you sell a book for a year. At least that was the deadline that I was given. And it sounds like it's pretty standard, right? Once you sell the book, you have two years before it's supposed to be published. And so for that first year, we were working on these substantive edits, um, and then at the end of that first year, it went to um, the 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 lawyers, right? like to make sure that they weren't going to be sued. It was more for them; they're they're less worried about me being sued, but they're trying to cover their bases. Um, and then it went to the copy editors. And even though the process with my editor had you know taken a, a much longer period of time, my copy editor. Uh, gave me a two week deadline to return for an entire book to return all of like, you know, like saving or preserving colons or, like you know, like all of the the clarity and punctuation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that two weeks actually turned into one because uh, my public, the editorial assistant was on vacation and she didn't get me their email until a week after they had sent it. Um, so that was really chaotic. It was really hectic and stressful. Um, and, and, you know, like that process was something that was interesting too, because I did think it was going to be more of a conversation when I was returning my copy edits, I was like leaving little comments where I was like, oh yeah, like I kind of agree with you, but I also kind of like it this way. Um, but it wasn't a conversation. They just wanted me to return it with like yes, this works. No, I want to keep it this way. Um, so that was an important or a useful thing for me to know (laughs) that I know now moving forward. Um, so yeah, so I'm sort of like reaching the end of my time. I'm happy to talk about, you know, anything else. Um, but love working with editors, but it is also like a relationship that is very weird. (laughs) Like Yeah. Okay. Uh, Oh, i oh,
0: in there. That was Editing 101 with Shana Lambert, Cadence Mandibura, and Danielle Geller. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This is the last episode of Season 4 of Writing the Coast. We'll be back in the spring with new episodes, and don't forget to follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter because we'll be announcing the 2023 shortlist in April. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.